Eden. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would be our Emmanuel. Lord, that you'd be with us during this sermon. God, that you would speak through me to your people. God, open up our hearts and our minds, our ears, Lord, to hear what it is you have to say. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Hope, peace, joy, and love. These are all things that we deeply want and deeply need. And we especially want these things during the holidays, do we not? But isn't it true that we often leave the Christmas season often more tired, discouraged, or even depressed than when we started, rather than full of peace and joy? And I think oftentimes we go through life never experiencing the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love that God intends for us. These things can escape us. And I think one reason why that is, why we don't experience these things to the full, is because we're looking for these things in all the wrong places. We try to find hope for the future, perhaps in our children or education or new leaders. We look for peace in vacation times, uh, recreation, or perhaps just vegging out on TV and social media. We look for joy and festivities and material goods. And we look for love and relationships that can never ultimately satisfy us. Friends, we're looking in all the wrong places and trusting in all the wrong things. But the wonder and the mystery of Christmas is that God has hidden hope and peace and joy and love in a manger. In the most unexpected of places, God has hidden all these things for us because in the manger, God has hidden himself. And he is the one who is our true hope and peace and joy and love. And that is the good news of Christmas. And we're continuing our sermon series this morning called The Promised Savior because God had promised a Savior who would come and bring all of these things to the people and into our world. And the prophet Isaiah told the people that this promised Savior would, would be a coming king. And this morning we're looking at a very well-known passage about this promised Savior who would also be a child. And this morning I'm confident you are going to hear it from a very different perspective than you're used to. Uh, you're going to hear what this passage meant to the original hearers. You see, prophecies or promises in the Bible about the future, they often have, can, uh, have double meaning. It's kind of like when you have a pair of binoculars and you look at one side and, and it gives you something that's really close up, right? And then you turn it around and you can see far away. That is how prophecies can work in the Bible. It can have a message for the people at that time, something that's close up, but it also can find fulfillment in something that was far away. And that's what is true of our passage this morning. In Isaiah, the passage that we read out of Isaiah 7, it was originally given to a guy named King Ahaz, who is king of the southern kingdom of Judah from 735 to 715 B.C., before Christ. Now, if you need a little refresher on your biblical history, this is the time period where the kingdom is split into two. At one point, it was just called the nation of Israel. You had King David and Solomon after that, but then after that, the kingdom split into two. And it's kind of confusing because the northern kingdom is still called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And that is the time period that we're in. And we're going to be talking about King Ahaz this morning. You thought you might be hearing about Mary and Joseph around Christmas, but you're going to hear about King Ahaz. How exciting is that? King Ahaz, Christmas Day, or Christmas week. Now, Ahaz was someone who placed his trust, he placed his faith in all of the wrong things. 
And our story begins in a galaxy far, far away, in about 735 B.C., in Isaiah chapter 7. And I want you to turn with me into your Bibles, because you will want to follow along, because it can kind of get a little confusing, because we're, we're not very familiar with this text. So Isaiah chapter 7 is talking about this time in the 700s, and there's a crisis going on. And it begins in verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Okay, now I want you to pause here. You might want to make some notes in the margin of your Bible or on your notes this morning. When you see King Rezin of Aram, behind Aram you need parentheses that say Syria slash Damascus. Because the confusing thing is these nations go by different names. Damascus was the capital, so sometimes it's called Damascus, and sometimes Aram is called Syria. Okay, so you need that parentheses there. And then Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel. Behind Israel, you need the parentheses Ephraim. That was one of the tribes in the northern kingdom, so sometimes the northern kingdom of Israel is called Ephraim. So it can get confusing, so I just want to give you those terms up front so you can follow along. So these two nations march up to fight against Jerusalem, that's in the southern kingdom of Judah, but they could not overpower it. Let's continue in verse 2. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So what's happening is here is Judah is being invaded. And it's hard for us, I think, to imagine the terror of what this would have been like. But I think common sense would tell us it would, it would have been absolutely terrifying. Two nations are teaming together with powerful weapons to invade the country. And it says that they're, 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 they're so filled with fear, it's like trees that are in a big windstorm. You can kind of see this image. They are shaking with terror, or shaking in, in their boots, as we like to say. And what's happening in Isaiah 7-8 through 8 is some people refer to it as the Syro-Ephraimite War. All right, so Syria, or the, the nation of Aram, and Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, are in a conflict against the southern kingdom of Judah. But there's another factor at play. If you've been in our series so far, you'll recall that there's this big storm brewing to the north called the superpower of Assyria. And I, I have a map that I'd like to show you about this. Okay, so there in the green at the bottom of the screen, that's the southern kingdom of Judah with the capital of Jerusalem. That's where King Ahaz is in charge. Then you got the northern kingdom of Israel in the purple. That's where uh, King Pekah is. And then directly to the north, that is Aram or Damascus or Syria, and that's where King Rezin is. And then further on to the north and to the east is the superpower of Assyria. And they have been growing stronger and stronger as they attack more nations and conquer more land. And now what's happening is Syria and Israel, the, the two nations, the purple and red, they want to build a coalition to protect themselves from the superpower of Assyria. Right, Because they're, they're bordering Assyria, so they're saying we better come together if we're, we're going to stop this superpower. And they want to get Judah involved. They want Judah to join them in this attack. But King Ahaz, he's not too concerned about it. Perhaps maybe he doesn't border the land, so he's like, well, they're going to they're gonna invade you before they invade me, so maybe I'm not too worried about it. But King Rezin and King Pekah, they get the idea, well, if we, what if we invaded Judah, took out King Ahaz, and installed our own king, who would, have a co who would build a coalition with us. So they decide to invade Judah, and that's where we are in our text this morning. 
And so you can see why Ahaz is so afraid. These nations have teamed together to take him out specifically. So God sends Isaiah to comfort him and to assure him that everything's going to be fine. All right, so let's pick it back up in verse 3. Look in your Bible. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, share Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So basically, what the Lord is saying to King Ahaz is don't worry about it. Don't worry about these threats. They're just smoldering stubs of firewood. They're about to be gone. They're about to be nothing. So that you have nothing to worry about. Just relax. I am going to be with you. I am for you. I am on your side. Do not worry. Have faith. Stand firm in your faith. I am with you. And it's either trust or bust. Have faith in me or you're not going to stand. Even though these enemies look powerful, very soon they will be gone. So Ahaz has a choice to make. He's the king of a nation, and he has a responsibility for the people, does he not? So if you can imagine being in his place and having the responsibility of two nations about to invade your country, and the Lord says, don't worry about it, do nothing. Just, just, just stand back and do nothing. Don't worry about these people about to invade your country. The Lord says, have faith. You can see the predicament that Ahaz is in. He doesn't want to do nothing. He wants to make sure that these people are stopped. And so look what he does. He does not stand firm in his faith. Instead of relying upon God, he relies upon none other than the superpower of Assyria themselves. An amazing turn of events. Look at it in 2 Kings, I got it on the screen for you. This is what happens in chapter 16, 7 through 9. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it off as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kir and he put resin to death. This is an astounding turn of events. Ahaz has paid off the superpower of Assyria, who these nations wanted to build a coalition against, and he says, will you take out these enemies for me? And not only that, he has taken money, dedicated to God in the temple, and given it to the king of Assyria to form a political alliance. Do you think God was pleased with what Ahaz did? I don't think so. And if we're putting the pieces together, it seems that this is the time when God comes back to Ahaz, with, amazingly, another message of grace, another message of promise. Look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So God comes back to him. Now, 
Even if we don't listen the first time, sometimes God has to come back to us. Isn't that right? I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, two and so I'm very aware that sometimes my daughter needs me to come back and hear what I said again another time. And all the parents said amen. amen. <laughs> sometimes they need to hear it another time. They need, they need to hear the message again. They need to hear what I said again. And we know that. We know our kids sometimes need further instruction. And this is what God does to us. He comes back time and time again. He speaks to us. And for some of you, God's been trying to get your attention on something maybe for years. He's been trying to speak to you. He's been trying to get a hold of your life. And even, and, but sometimes you're, you're just not paying attention. God's been speaking to you through your experiences, through your family, through your church. And it's maybe this Christmas season, it's finally time to say, yes, Lord, I'm listening. I'm listening. God has something to say. Let's make sure we're paying attention. So God is trying to get your attention, and he's trying to get Ahaz's attention. And then in verse 11, God's speaking to Ahaz in, in his, through Isaiah. And he says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Now, this is a really interesting verse because a lot of times God doesn't like when people ask for signs. You think about the people asking for Jesus for a sign in the New Testament. He didn't really like that very much because it was usually a sign that they were against him, that they didn't trust him, and that they were doubting. And the sign wasn't going to help anyway because they already made up their mind what they were going to do. And so God usually doesn't like when people ask for signs, but God in his grace, he wants to give Ahaz a sign. He wants to know Ahaz that... Even though these nations surround him, he is going to be fine. So God in his grace wants to show Ahaz, you're going to be fine, I'm with you. So ask for the biggest sign you can think of. Whether it's in the deepest depths or the highest heights, ask for whatever you want, I will give you a sign. Wouldn't you love to have that? Wouldn't you love to have the Lord say that to you? My goodness. But verse 12, look what Ahaz says. Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, it seems... Like Ahaz is being pretty pious here, right? He knows that we're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. So he says, you know what? I'm not going to put God to the test. But in reality, Ahaz has already put his trust in the superpower of Assyria using the money dedicated at the temple. No need for the Lord to get involved. No need for God to mess up his plan. Ahaz has it covered. Ahaz has it figured out. He doesn't need God to mess with it. He's already trusted in Assyria. So Ahaz refuses the sign that God offers him. Then in verse 13, Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? So even though Ahaz has tried God's patience, God is still going to give him a sign. Look at verse 14. Here's the, pat, the famous verse. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel. Now at Christmas time, we're very familiar with this verse. We know that it's, it finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ 700 years after this prophecy is given. But there's also, we're in the close side of the binoculars right now. And Isaiah was telling Ahaz that some young woman, and that's what it is in the Hebrew, a young woman, was going to give birth to a son. And she was going to name him Emmanuel as a sign that God was with the people all along and he was going to fulfill his word. Now, scholars are in incredible disagreement about the actual identity of who this child is, but to me it seems likely that Isaiah is referring to his own child in this passage. Now, I don't have time to dive into it, but if you read Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah's wife is going to get pregnant with a son. 
And the word Emmanuel is all through that passage. And, you, and it seems to be saying that this son is going to be a sign that God is with them and fulfilling his promise. And I think that's also likely because, if you read earlier, Isaiah and his wife were in the prophetic habit, if you will, of giving their children names that were messages for the people. They all had certain meanings that they gave to their kids' names that were a prophetic sermon to the nation. And so this is what Isaiah is going to do with Emmanuel. And look at verse 15. It says, This child who is born, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. Now, this is to me where it gets crystal clear this is a promise for the people then. He is saying, before this boy who's about to be born, before the boy is old enough to choose right and wrong, these two kings, this king of Syria and king of Israel, they will be laid to waste before the boy is even old enough to choose right and wrong. It's going to happen soon. God said they are smoldering stubs of firewood. They're about to be gone. And friends, this is exactly what happened. Isaiah delivered this prophecy in 734 B.C. In 732, Assyria came down and defeated the nation of Syria and took them out. Ten years later, in 722 B.C., Assyria invaded the northern kingdom and put an end to them as well. This prophecy was fulfilled. These two things that Ahaz was all worried about, in a very short time, they were gone. And Ahaz didn't believe the Lord. Ahaz did not believe that God was going to do this, and Ahaz did not stand firm in his faith. And we hear about Ahaz in another book, in 2 Chronicles, and look what legacy Ahaz leaves. It says, in his time of trouble, this time of trouble we're talking about, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. For he thought, well, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. Ahaz did not stand firm in his faith that God would be with him. And therefore, he eventually abandoned God and led others in the country astray. But even though Ahaz was so unfaithful to the Lord, God was still faithful to his promise. God in his grace was not dependent upon Ahaz's faithfulness. God still fulfilled his promise, his word. And this prophecy was fulfilled when these two nations were defeated in a quick period of time. Now, I want to go back to the binocular image. We've talked about how, what this promise meant for the community of God's people in the 700s B.C. But there's also what scholars call a dual fulfillment of prophecy, a double fulfillment, the vision of the binoculars that is often the distance into the future. So it's a word for the people then, but it's also a word that has a meaning later on in the future. And when the gospel writer of Matthew is reflecting on the events of what's transpired through Jesus Christ, I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, he remembers that God had given the people this vision of a child who would be born and would be God with us, who would be Emmanuel. And Matthew realizes it's fulfilled again in an even more profound way than we ever thought possible, than we ever anticipated. Look what it says in Matthew 1. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. God's done it again. God's taken this vision and has fulfilled it in a more profound, in a a more climactic way than Isaiah maybe even thought. And friends, Jesus Christ, we need to know, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. He is the meaning and the, and the story where the whole thing has been moving. It finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the climax of the story. And in himself, he fulfills, he replays, and he embodies the story of Israel. The story that God has been telling. And so Isaiah promised a child that would be a sign that God was with the people. In spite of the strong nations around them, God would be with them. And now a child would be born who would not just be a sign that God was with us, but he would literally be Emmanuel, God with us. And he is born, this child is born, to save the people from their sins, from the ways that sin enslaves us and steals our peace and steals our joy and our hope and our love. Friends, only God can save us from sin. I can't save you from your sin. Your neighbor can't save you from your sin. No one else can save you from sin but God alone. And so this one who is going to be born into the world must be God himself because only God can save. So it's got to be a miraculous, once-in-history event where God himself comes down to become one of us. So this one who is born is fully God. But because he is born of Mary, he is not simply fully God. He is also fully human, just like us. One early church theologian said this, Because his birth was from a woman, it was human. Because she was a virgin, it was divine. And friends, here's why this doctrine and this reality is so important. Because Jesus is fully God and fully divine. When God came down to become one of us, he united what two things that we thought could never be united. God and humanity. Oil and water. He has brought them together in himself. And now he is literally God with us. Or as Calvin said, God united to us. And that bond is inseparable. Jesus has forever united humanity to God. And now there is nothing, there is nothing in all creation, there is no power of hell, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that could ever separate you from the love of God that we have in Jesus Christ. It is an inseparable bond. And that is the hope of Christmas that we have. God is with us. And when we are in Christ, Christ is in us, and we can never be taken or plucked out of his hand. And friends, that is how we find hope and peace and joy and love, because those things are only found in God. We find those things because God is with us. And God says to us, in light of this message, he says to us the same thing that he he said to Ahaz, stand firm in your faith. Have faith in my son. Have faith in this story. Have faith in me. Place your trust in me. But I think if we're honest, we struggle with doing the exact same kind of thing that King Ahaz did. We, we hear the message. We hear the story. We hear the truth. But we go looking for something else to place our security in. We go for something else to find our peace, to find our joy. We look for, we look for hope, maybe in goal setting for the new year. We try to find peace by avoiding difficult people or difficult circumstances. Or we find joy and new presence under the tree. But friends, we're looking in all the wrong places. True and lasting hope, true peace, true joy, and true love come only 
through Jesus Christ and our connection, our bond with him. So this Christmas season, I wanted to tell all of you the good news, that a child was given to the world as a sign and a promise that God is with us. Because Jesus came into the world, we can now have that abiding hope, peace, joy, and love that we long for. And we can have these things now through our connection with him, and we can have them forever through the eternal life that God promises to us through Jesus. And in light of this gift, God asks one thing of you. Stop putting your trust in all the things of this world and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Put, place your life in his hands and in, in his hands alone. And he will unite you to God himself and bring you these tremendous gifts. And you will have hope for the future. You will have peace for the present. You will have joy for the journey. And you will have love everlasting. For Jesus Christ is our Emmanuel, God with